0: Okay, my name is Mike Diedrich. Uh, with me are Randy Rowland and Stephanie Atkinson, both of Veterans for Peace, uh, Chapter 92. Today we're going to talk about sort of the aftermath and the aftermath of our GI Resistance program, which was shown at the University of Washington and the, uh, and the GI Resistance uh, History project that was also uh, shown. Both of these people were uh, critical in, in organizing this for VFP 92 at the University of Washington. So this pro- this uh, radio show will be broadcast on KODX ninety six point nine. This is in fact Veterans for Peace radio program, uh, and uh, my name is Mike Diedrich. I'm a Vietnam veteran. So uh, let's go get started with this. Uh, you know, uh, 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 sort of a recap, if you want to. Uh, I just like to also say thank you to Ed Mays who recorded the entire thing, in, including Tacoma, the panels. Uh, and that is all. Those parts are all on YouTube now. It's really remarkable that we've got that videographer who can who could uh, have this as actually history 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 making really um, videos. So uh, Stephanie, do you want to go first? Sort of a uh, some comments about the uh, the panels in the program. I think the
1: exhibit is pretty awesome. In the entryway of uh, Swazalo Allen Library. Um, the The day long conference was really exciting and engaging, and um, people had a lot to say. Um, it was remarkable the sh- stories that were shared. Um, I was really struck that after our day long conference, um, a student like came and and wanted to talk about that uh, with, he was in the sort of the the area where we had our our, um, reception and and wanted to talk and engage with us. And I I found that really exciting. Uh, Been trying to develop that relationship and just keep in touch and and answer con uh, questions about what they enjoyed. And um, it was, I hope a success, in that people will uh watch it and go to the exhibit and um and that it will gain strength and uh momentum going forward. I know that the next stop is in Alaska. This exhibit has been produced at least a dozen times around the US and I think as it keeps going and people see it um you know repetition and reinforcement
0: and it's my understanding, that I haven't seen it there, but it's actually at the War Remnants Museum in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City. Yeah, it's a permanent uh, it's been, installation. been there for quite a while. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, Randy, what are your comments generally?
2: Well, going into this, we had that opportunity because Ron Carver's exhibit was, we had tried to get the exhibit here in town before COVID, and then COVID hit and everything kind of fell apart. But then uh, we got a chance to mount the exhibit at the UW in the library there. And the, where it is through, um, uh, towards the end of the month, it, the exhibit is taken down on the 28th. So people that haven't seen the exhibit have a chance to see it up until the 28th of this month, October. We saw that as an opportunity to not just have the exhibit, but to add some of our own particularities to it. And I, I think that was kind of a cool um, because uh, a lot of, you know, the, the exhibit gives an, an overview of GI resistance during the Vietnam days, um, both nationally and internationally. What um, we did in our conference is localize it and personalize it. We brought in uh, GI resistors who had, who had played a role in the Northwest at Fort Lewis or um, at uh, McCord Air Force Base or what's now called Joint Base Lewis-McCord. Um, and, uh, so we actually had nine GI resistors, um, on various panels. Um, we had, um, also, uh, you know, civilian supporters, Megan Cornish, who, who had worked at the, uh, shelter half coffee house in Tacoma back in the day. Um, we had, um, um, lawyers that had defended dissident GIs back in the day. Um, we had, um, um, other civilian supporters and then we had a, a third panel that Stephanie was on um, which was uh, uh, and that you Mike were on too as far as that goes come to think of it uh, uh, that started with VVAW and the returning veterans who, who were determined to bring home to America what they had realized about what was going on in Vietnam uh, and which played such a huge role in terms of shifting public opinion and and then we brought it right up to date with Steph representing um, not only a newer generation of, re- of military resistor, but also Courage to Resist, which as an organization um, uh, is even to this day is, is defending and helping GI resistors in, uh, in the Russian-Ukraine uh, deal where they, they have a GI, hot right, hot, GI rights hotline in, in Europe that answers in both Russian and Ukrainian uh, to try and help dissidents who, uh, are, um, uh, who aren't really for that conflict. Um, and so it was both historical and brought right up to modern times. And in that regard, I think it was sort of cool. Um, and then we had, uh, you know what, we didn't stop there. Um, and we have, uh, uh, we've had two out of three films, uh, just last night, we, um, uh, we had the second film in our three-part film series. We're having one a week. Uh, it started off with Sir No, Sir, which is sort of the definitive, um, documentary film about GI resistance back during the Vietnam days. Last night we showed the FTA show, which was, uh, all about, uh, you know, Hollywood's answer to the Bob Hope patriotic sexist piece of garbage that was touring around, uh, uh the globe, uh, to military bases. Um, and, um, and the FTA show is insurrectionary, in it's uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's impressive, and it really reflects those times um, uh, in terms of how, where GIs are at. Um, and then we've got one more screening, which is coming up on the twenty sixth, I believe, um, which is um, which is uh, the boys who said no, which is um, a movie about the anti-draft movement back in those days and uh, that's not just a piece of history of course because you know a couple of years ago uh, the supreme court ruled that that um that the u.s had had to either quit having mandatory draft registration for men or they had to start having mandatory draft registration for women in other words it was they you know they kind of said it was oh it's sexist to to draft men and not women Um, and so they threw it on Congress to either uh, start uh, registering women or quit registering men, and and so subsequently there have been dueling bills in Congress, which has been dysfunctional enough that n- neither neither side has won yet. But but the Supreme Court mandate is that is that they have to go one way or the other. And so every year here lately, uh, there's been a, there's been bills about. Extending the draft to women, or and also different bills that are eliminating draft registration altogether. So that's a current issue which is just waiting to kind of pounce on. It's sort of the silent issue because, uh, you know, there's been so many other things to pay attention to that folks are it's kind of flying under the radar, even though it's in plain sight. Um, So, our film uh, that we're going to show, our final film, which is about the fight against the draft, um, is so. Topical, um, because this is this is going to descend right on us. And for those folks who who think that one of the biggest differences between um, the Vietnam era and the current era is the fact that that was a drafty army and this is an all volunteer army, and that that made such a huge difference, which was one of the significant factors for sure. Um, well, if they if they open up draft registration for women, I can't help but think that the feces will hit the fan Um, uh, and we'll, we'll see on that, you know, I mean, uh, that has yet to be played out, but at any rate, so all of those things, plus we had a poetry and music night uh, where we had um, incredible performances and wonderful poetry. And um, um, so on all of those things have been happening on the campus at UW campus, or uh, we had one event at the university of Puget sound uh, down in Tacoma. And, uh, and we really wanted to kind of focus on the campuses sort of at Ron Carver's insistence uh, with his exhibit. He didn't really want to put the exhibit in a warehouse somewhere or some you know, public space, but that where he really wanted it to be focused on campus partly because there's student movements and partly because he wanted professors to teach the history that included the, um, the history of resistance among the soldiers themselves. Um, And he saw that as really important. And we certainly concurred with that thought. And so all of our things have been on a campus. And uh, one of the encouraging parts was that in the course of doing that, we met a student group at UW campus that's starting this year on a uh, campaign against U.S.-led wars. So it's a student activist anti-war group, and it's called um, Resist U.S. Wars, uh, Resist U.S.-led wars. And, um, and they're organizing on the UW campus. There's a similar group on the, uh, at Seattle U, which is uh, something something like divest from U.S. wars. Um, so there are student activists who are taking these questions up, which for an old man makes me just happy as I can be because we definitely want to pass that torch on to newer, younger generations. And so um, all of our efforts really were focused on the campuses and uh, and um when it's not quite done yet the exhibit's still up we got one more film
0: well thank you randy (laughs) you know you mentioned um and this is something that i'd like you to comment on stephanie the connection between draft resistors or conscription resistors in in russia and uh, the assistance that courage to resist and or gi rights hotline is making those connections with can you explain a little bit more how that is working or how how it's going to work stephanie uh courage to resist helped establish a,
1: a phone line it's located in germany and um we help contribute contribute to its uh, sustaining um and it's for um a, a phone line for russian ukrainian and Belarusian um resistors uh to contact uh, to try to help um People who want to resist to get out of participation. Uh, we know that the resistance movement is is increasing. Uh both Russia and Ukraine have suspended uh conscientious objection as um as a reason to not participate in more. Both countries. All males between the ages of 18 and 65 are being conscripted. If you are protesting uh, the war in Russia, it's not uncommon for them to pull people directly off the street who have been demonstrating against the war and conscripting them into Russian forces. Um, They're terribly underfunded, uh, terribly. uh, You know, the Russian forces are underfunded and in. And just, you know, they're conscripting people, giving them approximately two weeks basic training, maybe, uh, and throwing them into the war. So we saw by the, the recent attempt at the mass exodus of, of average guys trying to leave Russia that they do not want to participate in this conflict. Now, what those reasons are, I don't know. Um, and I don't really... Um, I don't know if I place a value judgment on that. If any individual person acts on conscience or, or refuses to participate more, I'm going to applaud that. Whether it's uh, merely an act of self-preservation or something that's much more deeply political. Yeah. Uh, I make no judgment on that. Um, Courage to resist tries to, uh, you know, fund this so that we can help uh, those people who do not want to participate. Um, continue to refuse so,
0: can, can you give us uh, uh, how to contact courage resist and or contribute to this uh, particular effort sorry, can both? you give us a a contact information on how to how to uh support monetarily courage yeah. to resist go ahead courage to resist.org
1: uh just as our name says courage to resist uh, we started uh as an organization to refuse to support the troops who refuse to fight uh it was established by jeff patterson uh who was a a, the first person to refuse service in the gulf war 1990 uh he was a marine who uh sat down on the airstrip at Hoey air base and uh, just refused to board um and was briefly incarcerated and then separated with an other than honorable discharge. Uh, I followed right behind him, similar circumstances. I refused to deploy and was arrested and incarcerated briefly and given an other than honorable discharge. We were at the very beginning of kind of a, a resistance wave. We, What happened afterwards to uh, some of our comrades and, and friends would, were that when The military realized it wasn't just an isolated incident, and that we weren't just sort of, uh, you know, a few, a few bad apples, but there was really momentum—hundreds and hundreds, and even thousands of people who refused to participate. Uh, Then things got a little bit more serious. Uh, They started charging people with uh, missing, missing a troop movement, uh, desertion in time of war. But it's like, you know. If, if war hasn't been formally declared by Congress, then how can you charge someone with desertion in time of war, right? So you have those two legal things. Um, since that time, there've been resistors who've come out of Operation Iraqi Freedom, uh, Operation Enduring Freedom, whatever those things were, and also from Afghanistan. Uh, we still continue to support soldiers today. We get people who are uh, filing conscientious objector status applications, getting it. Uh, we support one CO right now who is technically recognized as a CO, but because of just the short, um, short staff, uh, you know, has not been fully separated yet. So he's in limbo. Um, you know, recruitment is down in the all-volunteer force for multiple reasons. I mean, the labor market, uh, we can barely get people to work at uh, uh, jobs that are, you know, in civilian life. And that's great. I support this. This is like, this is a huge time of change and good momentum. People are forming unions. Uh, Young people are not, you know, going to to participate in the way that they were. So if we look at You know, being a member of the military is kind of a labor issue. Uh, The military recruitment numbers are down like the lowest ever. And that makes me happy as heck. I mean, really, uh, they keep trying to uh, change their standards and modify their standards of who they'll accept. Uh, They're genuinely desperate. And I love it um, because they're not making their quota. The alternative to their desperation, of course, is that they might try to pull out the stops. When we talked earlier about the draft, especially with females, um, the people who who are not supporting the draft for women aren't really our friends. Um, they tend to be right-wing, conservative, Christian, heteronormative type people who think that uh, women shouldn't be in the military anyway, just because we're insuperior as human beings. Um, and that that they don't you know they don't want to uh sully our, our ladyhood or <laughs> <Right. laughs> whatever you you know um and it's like so they're really not friends they're really not advocates um you know uh, people should be interested um in in the draft and, and and my thing is not just uh I'm against the draft for women I'm against the draft for everyone like all of our children you know it's like let's deny uh the military uh, uh human capital that's the resource we can deny um you know you can be a war tax resistor and and deny the government your your financial contributions your your monetary capital but denying them your human capital is probably something that's a little bit more achievable so
0: yeah well i and you mentioned briefly there's a lot of issues surrounding this uh, drafting women a lot of issues, and one of them is, of course, you know, the right wing con- con- concept of w- women as just homemakers and, and wives, mothers, mm-hmm. and the other thing is, as women as soldiers and and uh, capable soldiers. I mean, I w- I went back some a uh, few years back and looked at the uh, Iraqi War Silver Star women, and one of the women was a reservist from Kentucky who was in this big ass firefight and she got a silver star because she shot a lot of people but she was a a good old girl from the south and she knew how to use a rifle so i mean there's no and and then of course my own experience as an interrogator in vietnam ran across some of these very very capable women uh the idea that women don't know how to use their weapons or they need to they need to be trained as fighters is ridiculous of course Uh, one of the most famous sort of remarks i ever heard about it was Jap, who was actually the mastermind of the French defeat in Dien Den Phu and he says my best uh, my best porters were women they went and brought cannons over the hill to bombard the French at Dien Den Phu and he says if I didn't have it I might not have won this war so you know those old arguments are are ridiculous but also the, the idea that you, what you just mentioned is that nobody should be drafted. I mean, who should be drafted and dragged kicking into screaming into a war? If the government can't make a moral or legitimate claim for doing God's work as it were in fighting a the war, then it has no business drafting people. Does does, does courage resist actually is it part and parcel of the GI rights hotline? or is it, are, they, are they separate organizations? Yes, but we work closely with,
1: I mean, with GI Rights Hotline and referring um, uh, people there. We also have, you know, um, people can send their requests to us and we'll try to refer them to an organization and, and vet them and direct them to uh, to GI Rights Hotline. Um, the problem is there's not enough people doing this work, right? Yeah. Um, um, yeah. And it gets more complex. And yeah. I think, you know, one of the, you know, one of the more frustrating things for me um is when uh the military makes these things like, oh, okay, well, we'll we'll allow gay people to serve now, uh, or we'll allow uh non-binary people to serve. It's not really a gift. <laughs> I mean, it's like Oh gee, uh thanks. I get to participate in my own subjugation now. Like <laughs> big win. Uh, I don't think that's that that's it. You know, the military will take anybody that they can train to be a killer because is that not what we, we're all baseline killers, right? Everybody who's gone through basic training um it, it has that capacity, um, you know, to, to to treat women as if they are not. Uh, uh, capable as as soldiers is is you know just silly. Um, we 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 saw that you know, <clears throat> um you know, uh, state uh, representative uh, Tammy Duckworth, a uh, double amputee. We know that she's capable of participating in combat, right? Um, uh, the very shameful uh Lindy England, uh, the woman who is pictured. Holding a dog collar around a, a, a prisoner in Abu Ghraib, we know that women are capable of that level of cruelty, right? Um, so, so the the sort of false modesty of uh, that they're somehow uh, protecting our virtue or or something is it, just it's like thanks but no thanks. Um, you know, it, it's not about how you know. I I don't really take that as a win. Um, but if it keeps, uh, my nieces from having to, uh, register for the draft, I mean, is it a gift? I don't know. Uh, I, I think that, you know, we don't think about war and militarism unless there's an active conflict going on because there's so many other things to distract us. But the fact is there's wars and conflicts going on all the time, uh, you know, that the U.S. is involved in. Um, we establish bases internationally with no intent of ever recalling or closing those bases. You know, the, the idea of going into Iraq and Afghanistan is to establish a permanent presence, presence with really no, no intent or no solution to really withdraw. Um, and and so militarism, you know, encapsulates so much more racism, uh, sexism, imperialism. I mean, there's all of that thing. And that's why I think it's very intersectional and that when we try to address these issues, um, we have to dismantle it at every point at every access point, you know, um, is it better for, for, um, Soldiers of color now than it was in the 30s, probably slightly better. I mean, the the units are integrated, but does that mean that, that racism does not exist in the U.S. military anymore? Not at all.
0: Or, or so, for that matter, getting getting so called uh, any sort of military training that's going to be useful after your four or six years of active duty. You know, I mean, a light weapons specialist has a relatively few. Sort of job openings, unless you want to join organized crime, or for that matter, the exactly. Los, Angeles, Los Angeles Police Department or other police departments, right? You know, or
1: contract mercenary. Right, um, yeah.
0: The the know, other like thing is uh, you, you you, you uh, touched on it is that uh, this giant contradiction and actually national disgrace of how some people view women as as uh, uh, lilies of the valley. On the other hand, when they are in the military, this this Horrendous abuse rate, rape rate, assault rate of women uh, is actually something that the, despite some recent sort of legislative attempts to do anything about it, they haven't really done anything. And one of the reasons, in my opinion, is that you've got these senior officers, all white, all male, who um, don't want to really want to change any sort of thing. I mean, if the Joint Chiefs said, we're not going to have any, any sexual assaults and we'll have company commanders systematically court-martialing people, they should know what's going on in their company. If they don't, they shouldn't be company commanders uh, and start court-martialing people for assaulting their fellow soldiers, which are often in this case, women.
1: Right. Well, systematically that's not changed, right? If it was really, if they were really serious about it, then they would make a systematic change because I mean, when I was in high school, I remember that was when tail hook occurred. Right, yeah. Right? And, and so between tailhook and the murder of uh, the young woman, Vanessa Jeline, uh, who was being sexually harassed by her direct supervisor. And if her, her only recourse is to report up the chain of command. So you're supposed to report to your, your abuser that that your abuser. I, I mean, how does that even, you know, it's like it, if it were really an issue of concern, uh, that it it would be a priority, but I mean, I would say that just like in, in culture, I mean, and I'm talking about civilian culture. I mean, if it was really a, an, an issue, if we made that a priority, it would stop, but systematically, there's just no, there's no disincentive for anybody to, uh, to undermine that. Right uh that's just a risk that you will take if you enlist or you know as a female you know there's 30 percent of females and that's of course to underreported yeah that's typically will ex- we'll experience military sexual trauma um, you know going into it women kind of there are roles you know it's like well The slut or uh the you know somebody's wife or you know it's just like uh women get cast into these places in this hierarchy and and where you are that's kind of like the role that you'll you'll navigate while you're you're in the military just to survive um so it, it if it were really a concern i think that they would make it as you said there would be repercussions but It's kind of like, you know, I love hockey and, and technically in hockey, there's no fighting, but, you know, five minute majors for, for, you know, both players, but, but who doesn't, who doesn't expect to see a fight at a hockey game every time. Right. So in theory it's against, it's against the rules, but there's not enough to systematically rule it out and, and really have consequences where, where it doesn't occur.
0: Well, yeah,
1: he's an analogy.
0: <laughs> well, that maybe that's not such a good analogy. You're talking about maybe a concussion or some blood bloodletting, and the other hand, we're talking about a lifetime worth of of um, trauma as being exposed to a sexual assault in the military. And you know, I, don't, I I mean, we've all been in the military, and and uh, I had a conversation with uh, Kelly Wadsworth, which I don't think you've met. She was a member of our chat, very very articulate and. Uh, a thoughtful person, uh former captain in Iraq. And and it's her opinion, and I share it too, is that if you had a company commander who decided that there would be no sexual assaults or co- harassment in her unit, it would happen. And you don't have to go up to the rig- brigade or division to have this happen, but if you had company commanders obeying the law, the UCMJ, mm-hmm. this would stop. I mean, um, and... I suppose the direction for this uh, example of the direction for the company commander should have should come from more more senior commanders. They're not willing to do this. Right. Right. So if you, if you don't,
1: if you don't feel like you're backed up by higher level superiors and you're just kind of a a mid-level manager, which is maybe if we think about, you know, the corporate equivalent to an officer, it's like, uh, you know, you, you're not getting any support from your superiors. You're the people that you supervise are, are looking for accountability. Um, and you're mid career, you know, what's, what are you sizing up as the risk? Like, like, you know, um, there's just not a lot of, uh, there's a lot, not a lot of motivation or support for people to do the right thing. Um, and, you know, to, to act on their conscience um even in, in civilian culture, there's not that, but especially not in the military culture. Um,
0: well, that's interesting. you make make that sort of contrast between civilian and military and dealing with sexual abuse in a civilian context is a lot more complicated than in my opinion than it would be in the military. in the military extremely hierarchical culture and maybe as you say you know a lower ranking. Lower-ranking commander, like a company commander, might not have the support going up, but still, these lower-ranking commanders do have the authority to do so. Maybe that's a moral judgment or something like that. But in my opinion, it would be easier to do in the military than, than civilians, and they don't—they don't see that as something that's important. You know, I—I I mentioned it when I was did my piece on the. Uh, Veterans and, and uh, their connection to the GI Resistance, and uh, like you, I have I have been a counselor or uh, at uh, you know and students and talking about them about uh, counter counter recruiting. And the interesting thing about that is that we uh, talking to younger women, you know, students, young or girls, really, they get this really they get this idea of military uh, sexual assault very clearly. The seventeen-year-old boys who are mostly brain dead anyway, they don't, and and uh, that's maybe that's a physiological sort of a fact of life. But um, the staff do there. You know, the staff at the schools. I find generally experienced, I don't know your limited experience, but you've been doing it for a while. Do you find that to be the case also?
1: Say that the culture that we live in overall is um, is highly toxic. <laughs> Um, and is becoming increasingly so, especially when you have this sort of, um, you know, young males who are, uh, being exposed to manosphere shit, like, um, uh, the incel culture, um, uh, just the availability. And please don't, when I say this, don't think that I'm anti-porn because I'm not anti-porn. Uh, I, I, believe that people should have a choice about their sexuality and that however they want to enjoy that. But, but incel culture porn, that is uh, based on destruction of the female body. Like, um, you know, I I find that we're in a time where toxic masculinity is just exacerbated and um, and for women to be aware of it, that's just a survival skill, but I don't see any of that. uh, being really checked or called out, um, about, uh, and, and so when that, that it, it is contributing to the problem, if you will, but yeah, women are aware of it because it's just a physical reality that they have to be persistently aware of that, uh, just to navigate where we are. Um, and when it, I see it in the military, is that just being a more concentrated, uh, arena of that sort of toxic masculinity that's ha- that's that culture, right? Um, othering, the, you know, this is how we, you know uh, justify killing people is if they don't look like us or um, hold the same values as we do, then it's easy to otherize them and to see them as less than human and target them. And I don't think it's a huge stretch. Uh, to see that that applies to women, uh, uh, biPOC, and non-binary people, even if they are your buddies and Um it, it's it's not difficult to see that you know you know the military sexual trauma that that people experience is not from uh, the people that they're battling; it's the people in their own ranks. Right. So if you yeah. if you can't trust if you can't trust your battle buddy to, uh, not sexually assault you, why would you trust them in a a battle context? So, you know, in that, in that way, people are fighting two wars, right? Uh, there's the one against the proposed, the the supposed enemy. And then also, you know, the person that you're trusting to have your back against that enemy.
2: One of those things that is such a peculiar, um, contradiction because, uh, you know, everybody knows that uh, the, you know, in, in a uh, conflict, you want your side to be united and the other side to be disunited because that gives you quite a bit of an advantage. Um, but yet our American military, so you would think that they would have every interest in eliminating sexual harassment and assault, et cetera, uh, and that they would have every interest in eliminating racism. But in some ways, the f- the pillars upon which the American military rests um, because its business is going to these other countries and dehumanizing folks so that the American soldiers will will treat them, treat the civilians badly in those countries while we try to figure out how to get their resources. Um, um, and so, you know, racism and sexism are fundamental pillars of the military. You know, I um, when when I was in the army, you know, um, uh, going through training, you know, the, the, um, uh, if you weren't doing well, of course, then you were insulted with some kind of female, you know, oh, you know, you know, uh, um, uh, slurs and, um, um, and it was sort of like at the end of it, what you could really say was, well, okay. I, I, I passed basic training. So I proved at least I proved that I wasn't a girl. You know now, I don't know how they're doing the train basic training nowadays. Um, uh, they must not have changed it that much because it still seems like um, all the uh, racism and sexism and stuff still seems to be around, and um, it, and you know, it's such a contradiction. You know, I uh, I told a story at our conference, um, that that was that went along with this uh, exhibit uh, that I heard from uh, this. Pulitzer Prize-winning poet, Vietnam veteran, uh, Joseph Komunaka. And he told the story about um, when the French were in Vietnam before the United States was, um, the French army was like a typical colonial army was made up a lot of people from the French colonies because that was their path to citizenship. And, um, And so that which meant that there was a lot of African soldiers in the French army. And the French army you know, the United States Army, or military is not unique in being having racist issues. Um, and so in the French Army, the African soldiers were treated in all kinds of belittling ways. And so at a certain point, this one particular French soldier, a Senegalese fellow, um, deserted and took up with a woman in a village in Vietnam and was living happily ever after. And the French got their ass kicked. And um, and went home, and the Vietnamese beat him right, and then, so that seemed perfect to him because now he had you know his Vietnamese wife, and he's living fine. And but then <laughs> in comes the Americans, and so the Vietnamese government went to him and said, "Well, you know, you had military training, and we want you to help defend your new country." And he said, "Okay," and then he suggested, based on his experience in the French army as an African man. Um, uh, he suggested to the Vietnamese that they really focus on trying to divide the American military along racial lines. Soldiers, might, American soldiers might be that, that said, you know, um, ask the black soldiers why they were fighting the white men, you know, the war against other people of color. Um, and sometimes they even um, shot the white, white prisoners and let the black prisoners go with the same message about you know why are you participating in a racist war and and it did have it it had a tremendous effect actually and of course that dovetailed with the struggles that were going on back in the United States um you know uh Martin Luther King was given speeches about you know every bomb that's dropped in Vietnam lands in a ghetto in America you know and and um, um Muhammad Ali the the heavyweight boxing champion of the world who refused induction and, uh, you know, and his line was, <clears throat> well, no Vietnamese ever called me the N word. And, and um, so back home, there was all of this uh, upheaval against uh, racism um, and racial oppression. And, and the Vietnamese understood America better than America understood the Vietnamese apparently, because they understood this part for sure. Thanks to the Senegalese soldier in the French army, kind of the internationalism of resistance. Um, and so they very effectively played that, that tactic of uh trying to divide the american army along racial lines and it was hugely effective you know um there was a lot of resistance in the field that really uh, the root of it was all about um people struggling against uh racism which hugely undercut the american war effort so you'd think that the american army would say wow well we don't want that um um, but yet they seem reluctant because, uh, and I, I have to assume that the reason that they're reluctant to actually, um, knock that stuff off is because of the fact that so much of how they train soldiers to, to treat the civilians of foreign lands is to denigrate them. And, you know, uh, you, you know, you've got to have some psychological basis for being able to, uh, to, you know, treat, mistreat people, you know, uh, you know, when you start shooting civilians and treating them badly, why, um, you, you know, you, you psychologically can't do it unless you have othered them or somehow don't see them quite human or something. And so as a result, it, it continues to go on. And, uh, um, and the same thing with, uh, with the issue of, of women and sexual assault and all that kind of business, you'd think that the military would want their, troops to have each other's backs and be a cohesive fighting unit and all that kind of stuff. But, but they just can't, cause it's, it's so in con- conflict with the whole way that they train people and the whole, um, uh, the whole, uh, thing about you've got, you know, if you're going to be treating civilians badly, you've got to somehow denigrate them and make them less than human. And it's, it's, it, it, it blows my mind really that it goes on year after year generation after generation.
0: It doesn't make any sense on the face of it like you like you just uh, outlined but I think one of the reasons that it is so is because of it's an issue of power and uh, commanders don't want any sort of uh, what they consider to be a challenge to their authority, whether that's dealing with sexual assaults, uh, race, uh, you know, uh, any sort of challenge to their command authority is a challenge that they can they can't accept because it means that they're less they'd have less power you know and it, and the higher you go up in the you know, hierarchy of military the more that's is the case uh, you know if if they wanted to do something about it they could i mean they could for one thing they could have some presidents start sort appointing women generals to the joint chiefs that would be great if you had a couple of women sitting on the joint chiefs who were actually they might not. They would be lifers themselves, but they'd probably provide a little different perspective than some of the people who are sitting here currently sitting in the uh, in the chair.
1: You know, there's. I, I will say that, you know, and and I haven't been in the military for over 30 years, right? But but from what I can see, not a lot has changed. So if you have the 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 sort of Uh, American microculture that comes up around bases, both within this country and overseas, like Subic Bay uh, in the Philippines, or, you know, uh, Fayetteville in North Carolina. That culture extends to the community around it. So essentially, that community is in service to that. And and it it just exploits, it poisons the water, you know, it's like, You know, on one hand, you know, uh, at the end of of basic training, it didn't happen in my unit because I was in an all-female unit, but now I've talked to younger vets. It's like, you know, on the one hand, uh, guys are told as soon as they complete basic training, you know, I'm not going to tell you where the, you know, where the prostitutes are, but they're on this and this and avenue. You know, so there's this tacit uh, of of uh, endorsement of, of of the very thing that they say. It's like, I can remember going to Korea and going to strip clubs with my guys and my role was to be their buddy, to be their lookout, you know, to be there. I'm complicit in that, you know, I'm trying to, to, to get my unit back to our little tent city and make sure everybody gets out of their rack the next morning for formation, no matter how fucking hungover they are. Or you know, or to to you know this sort of Vegas, you know what happens in Korea stays in Korea, uh, you know, or you know pawn shop culture. I mean, we just do this, you know, where we're eating our own, you know, we're 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 trying. To, on the one hand, we're like, thank you for your service. Let me give you this exorbitant loan for a car that you don't need. Uh, get you indebted. Uh, to paying for something, and then repossessing your car 90 days later, you know, you see this, this same sort of culture around military bases that exploit uh, the civilian community, that exploit the lower enlisted, um, you know, and it just keeps them in this perpetual cycle of, of, uh, you know, of otherizing and taking advantage and exploiting, and it's like, you know, I don't see, I don't see any of that being addressed. Um, that that's just, you know, that's no different now than it was 30 years ago when I was in, and before that when y'all were in, right? Um, we we the 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 whole way that this functions is, you know, by the force of its own momentum. Because if you if you stand up to resist in any manner, like, you know. I mean, it, you—it's—it's it's a huge act, and there's not a lot of people to support you. And finding—I mean, really, the good thing about now is that at least soldiers can Google, you know, GI resistance, and the first thing that will come up is the GI Rights Hotline, um, so that they're at least aware that there are organizations who might help them. But, but in truth, the whole culture the whole militarism culture is what needs to be resisted and, and helping individuals is is a good start but until it's like sort of a collective act, you know where people are like there's something functionally wrong with this as an organization uh and questions that yeah. i mean
0: well um you know i'd like to ask both of you sort of, sort of specifics and, and, and if you believe as i do that much of politics and, and uh, activism is local. Then, what would VFP ninety two do specifically to support uh, GI rights, women's women's rights in particular? Uh, what sort of programs could they be doing and doing better uh, in in Seattle or West Coast? You know, Chapter ninety two. What outside of supporting the GI our, Courage to resist and giving money and supporting them or the GI Rights Hotline, you know, and that's probably a little larger discussion than we can have today. But mm-hmm. any suggestions that uh, we can take to uh, you know put on the put on the air, I think, would be welcome.
2: Well, uh, <laughs> I'll I'll take that on a little bit. Uh, one of the things that uh, that a VFP does, I think, is try to subvert that whole notion about veterans' right to speak. You know, there's, um, 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 you know, in a culture where they'll, you know, where there's special parking spots for veterans at Lowe's or, you know, <laughs> special benefits of various kinds. And, you know, everybody kind of, oh, thank you for your service, and kowtow to veterans, all that kind of business, which is really just trying to keep, you know, the next generation enlisting and going off to do the same bad stuff that the previous generation did. You know, uh, t- typically the role of a veteran in a militaristic society is to, you know, put a little tear in your eye every time they raise the flag and, and you know, tell your war stories and, and encourage the next generation to go off and make the same mistakes. And VFP, it tries to turn that on its head a little bit. And we seize the, the veteran's right to speak and use that as a, as a subversive, so to speak, uh, uh, opportunity. Um, and so when we marched down the street, or when we, uh, do, you know, do the various things that we do, we're trying to take advantage of something that, that, um, uh, and use it for a different purpose. And a different purpose, of course, is to try and stand against war, to stand against uh, racism and sexism and all that other kind of business, um, and 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 do it as veterans, you know. Um, and so it's it's really kind of um, I, delightfully uh, uh, inverting the, uh, the normal kind of structure of things. Um, and, you know, there's nothing that about being a veteran that really makes you any better than anybody else in terms of anything, really, and certainly not in terms of your ability to comment on racism or sexism or the other issues of the day. Uh, you know, women's reproductive rights, why should veterans have any more of an opinion about it than anybody else? Other than the fact that everybody should have opinions on all this stuff, and and it, you know the time is now. We've got a planet to save. We've got a you know climate change to deal with. We've got you know the, these challenges to reproductive rights, for instance, or on and on and on the whole list. And uh, and we just we take advantage of our status in society as as veterans to try and um, um, give us a a opportunity to, to weigh in on this in a way that, that um, um, defies the normal expectations of how veterans are supposed to behave. And um, that's, that's why I think it's kind of cool that we march every year in the veterans parade down in Auburn, which generally speaking is a patriotic coupla. And, and our very presence there is, um, uh, is trying to subvert that period, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, uh, the exhibit that we, uh, that we uh, helped to put on that's at the UW right now, uh, the conference and the films and the various other kind of stuff like that, that's all part of, uh, of, cause it's not just raising the question of war, which is worth it. If that's all we did, it'd be worth it because, you know, uh, uh, war and uh, war where you're going uh, as a country um to um you know steal other people's resources and oppress them in various ways and um you know wars of empire um you know uh, that's worth that's worth stopping but we don't stop there because we do raise as an organization these other issues um um around reproductive rights for instance you know or you know um uh, or racism and all that kind of business and and so um what can we do? Well, when we go to uh, counter recruiting and we go to the high schools, which what is one of the things that, that uh, Chapter ninety two uh, does uh, in particular, um, um, you know, uh, over the years we've we've fought for a situation where the whenever the recruiters go into a high school in Seattle, um, Chapter ninety two has an opportunity to go into. And uh, that's that something that we can be proud of. And then we're there, and what we're talking about is all of these issues. And and so I think that uh, that what we as uh, as Chapter 92, uh, Veterans for Peace Chapter 92, Seattle, you know, um, the counter-recruiting, the you know, um, participating in these various you know causes, you know, um, and we go and we'll you know it could be reproductive rights march or women's rights, you know, like the big uh, or the science march, you know, after Trump. Was denigrating science, and you know there was you know ten thousand people marching down the streets or more in Seattle, and you know and we were there with our Veterans for Peace flags, and it is like, well, why would the Veterans for Peace be at a science march or a women's march or whatever? Because we're using that opportunity to try and um, subvert the paradigm, I think, and um, and 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 so I think it's kind of cool, really, that we that we mix it up on all of these questions. Um, not just the question of where's the next big war going to be?
0: Well, I like to say when people say to me, "Thank you for your service," I said, "Well, you know, <laughs> how do you know what my service was, you know, uh, you know, being in a war, active persistent a war is, often as not uh, being just a, uh, a thug. And uh, you, know, I would recommend people saying "Welcome home," you know. Thank you for the services is sort of a cop out, although people often mean it well, you know, and sincerely. It's it's a uh, one of those things that doesn't really mean anything. Doesn't mean anything to me, for one thing. Um, so um, you're right, Randy. or just being around here, you know. These days, all veterans are warriors or heroes. I mean, that's the two words is most commonly. Like 30 years ago, they didn't des- describe veterans as warriors and heroes, but now we are all warriors and heroes. Uh, <laughs> I don't know how that happened, but it, it, it did. And, and, uh, um, the very idea that you've got veterans who are sp- speaking up about these other issues in particular, militarism and war is is a uh, shock to some people because they expect you to be as a warrior and hero to come home, don't tell us any fucking war stories, we don't hear that shit, but shut up and sit down and and just be a good patriot and wave the flag. Uh, And I agree with you about, you know, showing the flag, the VFP flag in 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 an environment like the Auburn Veterans Day Parade is a shock to some people but it's actually a, a, a good shock and something that people react to often favorably.
2: Well, nowadays they do at first, when we went down there, they were, they would uh, taunt us uh, and, you know, uh, turn their back on us when we marched by and show every kind of disrespect they could possibly do. And we more or less had to fight our way into the, uh, in, into the Auburn uh, veterans parade. You know, at one point, Auburn the city of Auburn actually prevented us from participating and we had to take them to court and force our way in there and the judge finally ruled in our favor and and then said and besides that don't make them march right behind the horses (laughs) (laughs) so we wouldn't have to step in the poop (laughs) so we won our we we fought our way in and we have continued to be there as a presence and but we have a presence in all kinds of places and and I think that that's so much of it, really, uh, on all these questions, is a question of creating public opinion. You know, you, that's that's kind of the battle. There's there was an old slogan back in the day. You know, create public opinion, seize power. And and the idea was that was that you've got to that there, it's a political battle, and you've got to create an atmosphere where people um, have political attitudes that are um, that reflect what we want them. You know, the, the you know the better side of things. You know. And, um, uh, and so, so much of, of it really is a battle as we used to say in the old days for the hearts and minds of the people, you know, um, and if all they see, if all folks see is, is, you know, a bunch of a-holes, you know, um, um, bragging about how many ears they cut off, or if they, um, if they, you know, all they see is, is sexist, racist baloney, then, um then that creates a public opinion that is where folks that don't feel that way don't even feel like they can stand against it we want to create an atmosphere where where you know see something do something you know if there's something racist going on the on the on the light rail that people will intervene and go that's not right you know if somebody is being assaulted we want people on the light rail to say that's not right and do something about it you know we want to create an atmosphere uh within the general public about um, you know that that is that is on the high road, and so that's that's kind of what our job is as veterans. we're not the only to come the revolution, so to speak, but uh, but I think that our job really is to try and help to create um, an atmosphere, a public atmosphere uh, that upholds the better values of humanity. You know, so much of this business, I'll say one last thing on this while I'm ranting, but um, you know that thank you for your service thing. The question is always on my mind around that is in the service of what, you know, because is our duty towards our uniform or our country? Well, you know, to some degree, if you live here, you know, you might have some obligation towards the country. I understand that. Um, but I, really, our duty is to humanity. You know, I mean, you take something like global warming, if, if it was never more obvious, global warming, because we're either going to all fly together. Uh, or we're going to solve the problem together. And, and there isn't any, you know, my country versus your country when it comes to global warming, you know, uh, or climate change. Yeah, I mean, this is something we're all, you know, nuclear war. You know, if if we have a nuclear war and go into 10 years of nuclear winter where there's no sunlight for 10 years, you know, nothing's going to survive that. Uh, <laughs> mushrooms, maybe they don't need yeah. sun, but most stuff needs sun. And and nuclear winter will be a horror that, that goes so far beyond you know, yay for my city and boo on your city or yay for my country and boo on your country. You know, um, we're all in this together and we might as well act like we're all in this together, which means that our real duty is to humanity. And so really we should be thanking people for their service if they're in the service of humanity and the cause of humanity. It's like the old radical songs about, you you know, marching for the cause of humanity. Well, now is the day when that really matters because that's what the stakes are it's the, it's the cause of humanity which of course includes that half of humanity who happens to be female you know i mean there can't be any short you know anything shorter than than uh, you know the liberation of everybody and the saving of everybody from the climate crisis and uh, environmental issues yeah. and on and on and on and